Welcome to the Two Lions Podcast. Real talk about real life as a startup CEO, including all the challenges and wisdom gained along the way. CEOs are slammed, so high-quality content from the trenches is rare. We hope to provide some of the value from classic works of folks like Paul Graham, Peter Thiel, Ben Horwitz, and Elad Gill. So let's go. Welcome to the Two Lions Podcast. Where are you? I am uh, over in the East Bay, like uh, around 20 minutes or so outside of like Oakland. Got it. Yeah, out by the mountains, out towards the desert. It's pretty sweet out here. It's very warm. Nice. So after 15 years in San Francisco, I actually finally have to California weather, which is really cool. Yeah. Hey, man, like I... I grew up in Sweden, but I've never been as cold as when I'm in the city, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, it's weird. It has a certain way of, like, really making you cold. I think it's just, like, you expect, you know, some something other than what it gives you. <laughs> well, it's, it's the surprise attack of it all. Yeah, the surprise like, attack. You're down in the peninsula, and it's, like, yeah, yeah. freaking, you know, it's so hot, and then you go up mm. there, and I'm... I'm always too lightly addressed you know type well of, even in the same thing, day right? yeah even in the same day like i used to walk into the office and it would be like super nice so i would be like you know putting on you know some some light clothes maybe even shorts or whatever and then you know if you're trying to go like i would be going between meetings or whatever to meet different people in soma and, and once it hits like four or five it's like that rapid temperature drop. So yeah. even in the same that's day, right. that's how it catches you. And then you don't have a jacket, yeah. and then you're in shorts and a t-shirt, and you're just basically fucked. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Really <laughs> it's like really, yeah. and then you're like, whoa, man, like about it, you know. And this will happen, you know, in August or whatever, right? right. So it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not expecting yeah. it. So just like the way you expect the seasons to behave and the temperature of the yeah. day and everything yeah. is just so. It's so weird in the San Francisco microclimate that it just tricks you all the time, you know? Yeah, and, so. and seasons, it's funny you mentioned that, because seasons, that was the key thing that me and my wife, more my wife than me, but me as well, that that we missed from Sweden, yeah, right? In there's the, no seasons. Whatever seven years we lived there, it's like, yeah. it all became this blended something. Mm. There's like a winter, which was like, yeah. it rained slightly more, but I was there when it kind of didn't even rain, right? right? For like like a month or so, and yeah, that's that was the winter of it all. It's basically the same, more or less, always. And uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's now nice. the flip side is you can go to Tahoe and have world class skiing. You exactly. can like, like if you're willing to drive a few hours, you have it all. Yeah, right? and so so that's yeah. the, I think the upside in many ways. Yeah, the upside of the bay is exactly that. You have everything around very close. Like a lot of world class nature is within two yeah. to three hours. And then yeah. and then also like San Francisco is uniquely weird in this weather respect. Like a lot of the rest of the bay has pretty perfect weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, then it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's weird. It's a very weird place that you I go there now uh, to party, and like that's it. <laughs> you know, there's no other reason to go out there. Uh, none of the startups, you know, people aren't really there anymore much anyway. Yeah. It's like nobody yeah. really is going in and meeting and stuff. So yeah. I never go. And I was uh, work. I was there all summer. Uh, well, all of July, and um, yeah, so a little like six weeks this summer, and no one was in our San Mateo office. So we had. Yeah. Two floors of real estate that is completely unused by 
everyone. Um, and so uh, it's definitely. It's def- Are you guys just getting different. rid of that, or what? Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, I mean that's we're we're thinking through that right now, but like certainly we see a different pattern in the Bay Area compared to everywhere else. Other um, you know, I mean. I'm in Malmo, Sweden right now, and the offices uh-huh. have been like, no one remembers that there was a pandemic, right? Same in London, right? Um, yeah. Even the East Coast, I feel like is different, but man, California is still <laughs> is still there in so many ways. People don't really want to go back, it yeah. seems like, yeah. Well, it's... but then also like, Eamon's, so part of me was like frustrated and I talked to kind of the, the East staff team, it's like, hey, you gotta be role models. and. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, well, okay. But then you drive in, take an hour oh. of commute or 45 minutes of commute yeah. one way. Yeah. Get to the office, get on back-to-back Zoom calls. Yeah. And then you take 45 minutes and you drive back. So wait, right. so what's the point again? What are you doing? Right. Yep. So I, I think that's legit too, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's going to be, um, it depends on, you know, what's happening in the offices and, and why you exactly. go, you know, and uh, I think for a lot of tech companies with a major or headquarters office here in the Bay, it's just become really kind of questionable what activities are happening there that they need to be there for you know and like you said especially when so many of the meetings are remote and so you're jumping on these two calls with other offices and you're like why the fuck did i just do this commute you know and i think also there's probably i think there is a real sense of like needing to rediscover ourselves here in the bay because you know the the top it's not just from the pandemic everybody moving away like that this sort of like some narrative about that um but it was already happening before the pandemic first of all like the price the cost here because the cost of living is just a lot of friends were already and then also the other piece that people aren't talking about enough is the douchebaggery Right, the douche, yeah. ba- the douche, <laughs> the douchebaggery was at a massive all-time high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, totally. You know, and like the people that have lived here a long time, including myself, are like fucking nerds and weirdos right. and hippies yeah, and right. like you know yeah. when when we had when we had the like wannabe Goldman Sachs people moving in because they thought <laughs> yeah, you know they right. they thought the oh, money yeah. was easier in tech than investment yeah. banking and stuff. So yeah. it's all. All these people coming in, and we're and and basically like the just it's that and crypto bros, and it's like okay over yeah. here, over here is like a Wharton MBA Goldman Sachs guy. Over here is like a crypto bro. Like this sucks. And right? that's, like, that's the time when you just, yeah, yeah. you're like you're like this sucks, <laughs> and you're looking around. You're like I remember when I moved here. I was going to parties and there's like these weird Burning Man hippie people and then there's like yeah. some bunch of physicists and like just random shit that you see and the naked bike ride guys are riding around their bikes buck naked in the middle of the day and you're like, this place is fucking cool, man. This is yeah. some weird shit. <laughs> you know, like I like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when, you know, when you see like all peak douchebaggery that you're like, wait a minute, this isn't what I'm here for. Like what the fuck's happening in the place has lost its soul. And you're like stepping over homeless people on the street and like trying to do a spin move around a shit and a needle. And it's like, 
just fucked up and gross. So you also have this like incompetent and dysfunctional California, you know, left that just can't get anything done. And like, but between the culmination, the and brigade. Yeah, exactly. Like between the the combination of all these different factors, I think it has just made the place kind of like really lose touch with its soul and roots and like need to kind of rediscover that. I think that's right. Though I also think that we've seen this happen before, right? Like really, Yes, yes. Like, it's not the it, first time. Yeah. No, it's like it's a sine wave type of a thing, right? Like Yeah. And um like my like uh I I was supposed to go to start college in 98. Mm-hmm. Maybe 98, 99 instead. I did my first startup. So ended up actually going to college, CS, in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference, like the, the 99, 2000 cohort of CS, right? They were the ones who, you know, again, the Goldman, Wharton, you know, type of uh, folks. Right. Whereas in 2003, you really had to be a nerd. Yeah. You really need, you know... And and so probably something like that, like the big cleansing of 2023, might weed some of this out. I Uh, think it is. I think that's already been happening, right? It's like, and it's not it's not a cool place to come. So now people are going to Miami or New York again or whatever, right? And it's like, I think that's fine. Like, it's not. It needs to have its uh primary character like somehow restored and obviously everything needs to be you know to reinvent itself and be the modern version of itself but yeah i think san francisco needs to sort of figure out what the modern version of itself is going to be and and right now it doesn't feel that's there from from going around you know like walking around in the streets and stuff it's definitely more lively um than it was you know a year ago like there's shit happening but yeah, it just doesn't feel the same. And like, you, you don't see the packed restaurants and bars and everything else. Like yeah. you see a little bit of it, but a, like a lot of stuff has this weird post-apocalyptic vibe to it mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's a weird vibe. So, like I, yeah. So let's, let's dive in here. We can talk about. Yeah. But before we kick things off, what yeah. the hell is Two Lions? Yeah. So Two Lions is I'm my new. Um, yeah, it's very stealthy for now. This is my new startup studio. So I guess really quick, like over my past like decade or so. So I built that company Prismatic, right? Which was the personalized yep. news thing. We sold that to LinkedIn 2015. That's yep. basically a, a chunk of powering the LinkedIn news feed. And then I started a startup studio then in 2016 that was like all stealth. We never really announced it or talked about it or whatever. And it was all run primarily out of Europe because my ex-wife is from Slovakia. So I built it in Czech Republic and Slovakia mostly. And it was like an AI startup studio. We did four startups in a few years, had some exits. Um, That was backed at a seed stage by my former venture capital fund DCVC that's grown to be pretty big it's like three billion or so in capital now I stopped working with the guys we had some differences of opinion and DCVC or yeah yeah DCVC yeah DCVC and so at the point where I had these differences of opinion was like okay well um you know they were the only backer of all these startups except for one that had kind of accelerated out and raised money from others so we basically decided 
you know, let me do the best I can to get all these things to a good place and fully independent. And then I'm going to go start a completely new thing on my own. And um, remind me, like, so did you see back, times. like, one of our competitors, was it like hmm. TinyGraph or DGraph or which one uh, was it? I don't remember, actually, because I haven't been very active for, for many years now. Yeah, um, I, 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 I forgot. Yeah, I, I, I haven't been very active for many years. Um, I, I think, you know, that world, you know, Lux Capital, DCVC, a lot of these other people, they kind of, if you recall the uh, pivot from the big data era to the uh, deep tech era, right? It was now called deep tech. And when that happened, you know, I do stuff that I know, you know, uh, and I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of people doing a lot of stuff that they really don't know jack shit about and claiming otherwise or posturing otherwise or whatever. And I'm not going to do stuff like try to invest in, uh, in nuclear energy and things like that when I don't right. actually know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I would do something with, I, I mean, I, I, I understand the value and importance of it. I would do something with somebody who was investing in that or doing that somehow if I felt a way to like identify somebody else who was competent, but like, I'm not going to you know, posture like first party competency in these areas where right. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Meanwhile, you know, like I, I care about consumer tech. I care about like, you know, simple long tail SaaS businesses, whatever, where like data and machine learning and AI stuff are, are central. And I care about other areas that I had never gotten a chance to like work in yet. Like I do a lot in Africa right now, for example. Um, cause I used to be a hedge fund guy and do macro kind of shit way back in the day before tech. So, um, I, I started two lines so I can basically do whatever I want and work on things that I actually know about and understand. And also because we're bootstrapping our stuff, so I'm not really raising VC money for anything right now, um, which I prefer to, to keep it that way as long as possible or even indefinitely. Um, as you've seen in this in this journey that you're on now, it's just like it's always... It's always a mixed bag, you know. Every time, every, every new big chunk of capital is always coming with um, some good and also some strings attached. And it's like, you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's a <laughs> particular way of doing things. And I think it, yeah. for s certain kinds of modern SaaS companies, like if you're starting them now, probably not when you started, but now. Um, you can really bootstrap pretty far, right? Because like the cost sure. equation is so low and the lack of infrastructure needed is has become so ubiquitous that you can pretty much like bootstrap and, and get to profitability and grow on your own, you know, cash flows. Um, and many SaaS startups have demonstrated that and gotten quite large. And I think a lot of other ones could have done so without actually raising much um so i want to play with that you know do kind of SaaS, like really money-making SaaS companies that don't aren't very speculative very clear use case very clear uh, path to immediate revenue and then see if we can scale some stuff without even needing any vc money at all so and we have all kinds of all kinds of other cool like weird stuff as well um but okay let's dive in here let's dive in let's do it 
I always like to talk to people about their early stuff. So before Neo4j, you did Wind. How do you say it? Wind H W I N D. Yeah, Wind. Wind. Yeah. Um, so what what was it, and what did did anything in there help shape your vision? Like, where you, did you discover use cases and stuff that led you to this Neo4j thing? Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah, so this was the first startup that I worked at, and I didn't found it. I wasn't the, one of the founders. I joined as a, as an engineer. I was in my man late teens or, or like maybe twenty years old or something like that, right? Um, and so very early on, just maybe my first real job or something like that. Um, and it was a uh, you know um, a really small company, but they didn't call themselves a small company. They used this other weird term that I'd never heard. They call themselves a startup. Right, um, and it was um, you know doing enterprise content management systems, right? But this was was you know at the time it was called ASP. If you remember that, oh not, yeah, totally. The, the not Microsoft ASP. Oh no, 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 no not Microsoft. Oh. No, 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 not that, not oh. that. That's application service pages or something. Right, like that. right. Or application server pages or something. Yeah. No active active server pages. I think is, is, is what it was. Yeah. But this ASP was application service provider. In other words, oh, yes, we today yes. would call SaaS. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, so so what that meant was that, so enterprise content management is basically a big file system, right, that you upload your stuff to instead of putting it in your no local file server, right? Um, but ASP meant that it was a service that you used your browser to access, right? And this is like, whoa, very weird and revolutionary. This is like Hotmail era. Yeah. Salesforce barely existed. This is like right. this is way back in the days, right? It is, yeah. Um, and, and so we built that, and today we will call it a multi-tenant SaaS application, right? Which meant that you were logged on and you work at company X. Like as you log on, you would get company X's logo in the top left corner, the colors, right, on company X, that type of thing. Right. I right. log on to the same system from company Y, and it looks company yeah. Y with our colors, right? So even though yeah. it's served out of the same platform, yeah. it has a different, it's a multi-tenant solution, right? Yeah. And what that meant stuff. for us technically, right? So I, I became the CTO of the startup, CTO and VP engineering. Um, and what that meant for us technically was that we had to manage like a really sophisticated set of permissions where Bradford is part of a group that is this company X. But in fact, you were part of a group called, let's call it product marketing, which is then part of another group, let's call it marketing which is part of company X, which is kind of a tree, right? And then actually product marketing is a little bit of a weird group because it's part of both the marketing group and the product management group. So actually all of a sudden that node in your tree has multiple parents, which for someone like you is mathematically schooled. That's when a tree turns into a graph if you, when you have multiple parents, right? And so we had to model that out and we were using a normal, classic kind of architecture, three-tier architecture is what people talked about back then, right? So we had a normal relational database, we had a middle layer and kind of a presentation layer, right? And so we modeled this all out in Oracle and Informix were kind of our databases of choice back in the in the days. And we could model out this permission kind of hierarchy slash graph. It was doable, but it's kind of awkward, right? And then when you had to marry that to say that Bradford has right access to this folder, which lives in another folder, right? As right access, and then as a member of product management, you have read access to this other folder. And then you start looking at this and you have to 
resolve in real time when you try to access like some piece of content, you have to basically calculate what we would mathematically call the transitive closure of both of these graphs and find the overlap, which all of a sudden, if you model this out in a relational database with joins, it was doable, but man, was it painful, right? And so here I am, early 20s, we have a 20-person engineering team where we're VC-backed, even though I barely understood. I just, we had some investors. That's all I kind of understood, right? Half of my team is spending the majority of their time fighting with a relational database. And this is shocking to me because even though I was kind of early 20s, I've been programming half my life, right? I've been building a bunch of software, kind of early internet games and stuff like that. In every single project that I've ever had, the database had been an accelerator. It had helped me. It took this big, gnarly, I'm going to store shit on disk, make it, you know, queryable with some programming language, multiple users, concurrent access, you know, guaranteed durable storage, online backups. Like that's, those are big, gnarly problems. Took that all off my plate so I could focus on building my game or solving whatever application I was building, right? But in this case, it was different. And so that's actually, that that pain we lived through, that was the fertile birthing ground for what we today call the property graph model in, and, and Neo4j. Because the root cause of all this, we now have a language for as an as an industry, which is we had a shape of data that was a mismatch. The shape of that data was a mismatch with the abstractions exposed by the relational database. Right, the relational database exposed a tabular structure, rows and columns. Great for your payroll, your uniform data, averages, you know that kind of stuff, right? But I had all these relationships and connections and multiple levels of indirection, and tried to squeeze that into those tables was doable, but again, very hard, took very time consuming, and also from a runtime perspective, very slow. So that's kind of the kind of the high level summary of kind of my time at at that company and also how that led into into what we today call the project. Yeah. And um did you start messing with this at the at wind or or doing an open source project or whatever? Did it uh, tell me about like the sort of actually origin story for the open source project and Neo4j as a company? Were they the same? Yeah. And so what ended up happening was that we after a quite a while, like a year or so, started getting some kind of understanding around why was the database holding us back, right? And then we realized that what we wanted was a database that worked exactly like Oracle. Like I was a big fan of Oracle, the database back then. I still am a big fan of Oracle, the database, by the way. Like I think it's a great relational database. And so so, so I want that, but I just want a different data model. Instead of rows and tables, what if we had nodes and then relationships between those nodes and the relationship could have a tie because, you know, Emil and Bradford are friends or colleagues or married or that's, those are different, different things. So we should have types on the relationships. And you know what? Let's have key value pairs on both the nodes and the relationship. So the Emil node has, you know, key name, value, Emil, right? And then the relationship friends, it has an age. 10 years, you know, that kind of a thing, right? So if we just had that and everything else is the same, everything feels like Oracle, that's what we wanted. 
And so we figured we can't be the first people to run into this, right? That doesn't seem possible. So we started looking around and we just couldn't find anything. We found some people emulating it on top of a relational database. It's like exposing an API, right? But we felt like, mm, well, that's a little bit of lipstick on a pig type of a thing. We tried that out. It was always very complex. It was always not, it never performed well, never scaled well. So it's like, all right, that doesn't seem to be the real solution. So ultimately we came to the conclusion that, you know what, we need to build this ourselves. And we were young enough and naive enough to say, you know, screw it, you know, let's just build it. How hard can it be? Yeah. That type of a thing. Right. And here we are. 15 plus years later, it turns out that really? it's pretty hard to build a fully asset transactional, you know, graph database. But, yeah. but so, so that was the birth, the birth of it all, right? And then we built it all for that, for that startup. That startup then went through the IT bubble, uh-huh. flew high, crashed deep, mm-hmm. super painful. I'm a young manager, you know, had to fire all my friends. Right. It's like really brutal, right? And I didn't right. know what I was doing at all because I'm 23 years old, right? It was like very tough times. But but out of that, we ended up building this new this new database. And we talked about it as, hey, this is bigger than just our company, right? But it didn't feel right for us to convert that company to a database company. And then also, early 2000s, kind of the discourse in our industry wasn't really, it was more like, hey, the relational database, it's like this mathematical axiom underpinning everything else, right? You know, 10 years earlier, the object databases came around and Larry Ellison killed them with a single keynote at Oracle Open World, <laughs> right? And wiped out that entire industry. And so no one really talked about the relational database as prime for disruption or anything like that, right? And so we, we just kept it internal. We just said, hey, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna be able to build software faster and build faster software because we have this more powerful backend than our competition. So it's our secret sauce. It's our competitive advantage type of a thing, right? So that's kind of how we thought about it. Fast forward a few years, and all of a sudden, Amazon releases this this academic article called Dynamo, where they said, "Hey, you know what?" We tried to scale based on Oracle and all the kind of commercial off-the-shelf software, um, but we just couldn't. Like we're operating at, and they probably didn't use the word web scale, but whatever, something like that, right? Massive scale. And so we were forced to build our own database. We call it Diana, but here's how it works. And six months after that, Google released the Bing Table paper saying, you know what? We're Google. We've also seen some scale. We also were forced to build our own type of data, new type of database. Um, here's how it works. We call it Big Table, right? And that was this kind of lightning strike in the alpha geek community, which you are a part, right? Where it's like all of a sudden everyone started talking about the death of the relational database and you know that kind of stuff, right? Hadoop came into the market, and all of a sudden there's like this entire Cambrian explosion of of choice and experimentation. And we sat there and it's like, well, wait, we've built this thing that we only used internally. That's kind of early. It's kind of beta. But you know what? It works for us. What if we took this and we released it into the world? And honestly, we were like super arrogant about it. 
we said things like um the world deserves this you know and stuff like that right and and when we um bought it was never clear to us that we were gonna start a company around it right we were very naive about that we 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 our initial go-to move was let's open source it and kind of the gold standard, like what we aspire to, what we almost didn't dare to dream of, but what, what we secretly hoped for was to be accepted as a top-level Apache software foundation project. That is kind of what, you know, and then we figured we'd, we'd um, release it and then, you know, do consulting on the side, like on top of Neo4j, right? And and that's that was going to be our, our lives, right? Um but then after a while, we started realizing that, you know what? It's a freaking database, right? It's just about as R&D intensive as you can get without building semiconductor fabric factories and stuff like that. So we're like, hmm, it'll probably require some amount of full-time engineering. And if we're out consulting on this software that we're releasing for free, hmm, well, you know what? There's a way, like capitalism has figured out a way of organizing resources such that you can invest in stuff like this, right? What if we wrapped a company around it? And and so then we realized, you know what? Hey, let's try to marry both of these things. Let's let's release an open source edition of our product, but then let's use an open core model where we also have a commercial edition. Um, and that way we can actually fund full-time, you know, R&D engineers working on building the data. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, you guys are old school, You've been around, you know, for quite some time and you've seen these kind of, I would characterize as two completely distinct eras of this uh, open core model, right? Because, um, and you've managed to somehow transcend to the second era, even though you were before the companies that were in the first era, right? So you had the Hadoop guys, like the, like Cloud Aaron Hortonworks and these guys, which kind of turned out to be just, if we're being candid, pretty shitty businesses, right? Because totally. they were basically, the way I talk about this is like, that was actually just a window left open by IBM's incompetence, right? Like IBM incompetently whiffed on like big data and then AI and then blockchain. They kind of whiff on everything, right? They kind of miss it and then they come in later with a bunch of nonsense. And so, but they're like, nowadays they're they're like this large-scale tech services player right and they missed that opportunity in big data and left the door open to all these like Hadoop consulting shops which cloud era and orton works and so on kind of filled i'd put palantir in that bucket too they're basically just a, a glorified hadoop consultant but they actually owned it that that's what they did and they did a way better job i think of productizing their services and they made more money but anyhow you had this first wave they kind of have a mediocre services businesses. And then you have the second wave. One of the guys I had on to interview early on here was uh, Jay Kreps from Confluent. He's a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, they they IPO'd and became like a $15 billion company, right? And then Databricks became like whatever, a $25 billion company. So you have these guys, basically they're running the thing hosted. All of a sudden it's worth 20 bill, <laughs> right? And it's like, whoa, this is a pretty big change. And you you guys have been kind of like, you know, petering along like the whole time and somehow came to this new model, even though you predated those Hadoop companies. So 
I'm real curious to just hear about your journey and how you managed to to get to this point because this wasn't obvious when you started, right? And and like you're the the way you're talking about things and kind of having this open source project wrapping a company around it and like kind of somehow navigating to where you are now must have been pretty interesting path. I, I can't think of another company like it that's that's been around through those eras and has like come to a modern model now. So I'd love to hear about this story a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of aspects to it, obviously. I think like clearly a high order bit is is actually one of let's call it licensing and product edition, right? Yeah. Which is kind of this geeky topic that open source founders like myself can spend hours and hours <laughs> debating and exploring nuances of, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into kind of all of that, but suffice to say that when you choose an open source business model, it's actually not mm-hmm. a business model, arguably, but like, let's call it an open source company where a big part of, of what you build is available for free under an open source license, right? Yeah. What specific license you choose and how you um, uh, differentiates your, your your how you differentiate your product editions. It's actually a very strategic choice, but most open source companies they make that decision super early on mm-hmm. by a technical, usually apolitical and non business savvy founder, mm-hmm. right? Who makes that decision on fairly arbitrary kind of grounds. It could be things like, I choose the GPL because it's the most popular license. Mm-hmm. Or I choose the Apache license because I'm in Java and most libraries that I see are Apache license. It could be stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? But that decision coupled with how, with whichever way you float features into your product editions will in many ways control the long arc of your company. And we made a ton of mistakes al- around the way, al- along the way this is not one of them though we were thoughtful mm. about this particular piece where we said you know what mm. we're going to be have a community edition which is which is gpl right which gives us this distribution advantage of being open source mm-hmm. right compared uh, and matched with an enterprise edition which is initially a gpl and then closed source mm-hmm. right which means that one of the cloud platforms so we, first that means that you can convert uh people who use your 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 community edition into actual customers right yeah so that's yep. obviously important and the, the, the knock-on effect is that it also becomes very challenging for one of the cloud platforms to adopt your product right mm. and so the combination of the licensing choice that we made and how we chose to differentiate those those editions where we have a very powerful enterprise edition right mm-hmm. another way another way of saying that is that we could have made the community edition more powerful, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the consequences of that is that we've controlled our own destiny over the long term, right? Right. Because we, you know, there, there's, you, you mentioned the Hadoop vendors. We could spend an entire episode talking about what went wrong there. Some things went right, but a lot of things went wrong right. from a product surface per, you know, perspective, from an architecture perspective, from a business model perspective. From, there's so many things that, that are interesting, yeah. you know, it, uh, about that, right? But one of the reasons that we've been able to do this has been just this ability to control what's in our community edition 
versus what's in our in in our enterprise edition. Interesting, interesting. And you, so are you guys running your own hosted solution now? Is that like yeah? And is that where the majority of the revenue comes from now? Yeah. So okay. I think what what's emerged now in the last few years is like kind of this blueprint for let's call it the B2D, like startup business to developer or like a yeah. kind of a developer first go to market, you know, right, right. Some, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where it's like you build a self-managed piece of software, right? Which uh, is ripe, still right for many, not all, but, but many types of products today, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. kind of enterprises run on data centers, but developers run on laptops, you know, type of yep. thing. Yep. You know, developers love to have a local, local experience, right? Mm -hmm. So you build that, you have a community edition that you get distribution through that. You have an open core edition for monetizing people on the self-managed, right? Who wants to run it in their own data centers. You monetize that through like a closed source, open core and, you know, enterprise edition, right? Mm -hmm. But then the primary thrust is your service offering, your, your cloud offering, right? And so we have that, uh, it's the equivalent of Atlas or MongoDB. We call it mm -hmm. Aura, A-U-R-A. Mm -hmm. So this is near for day Aura. It's a fully managed cloud offering available on the, all the three major clouds. We have a, a free tier, right? That's, so that's the spiritual sibling to the community edition in the self-managed world, right? The, the free mm -hmm. tier, you sign off completely for free. You don't even have to swipe your credit card. And there is some limitations, obviously, right? X amount of capacity. We know some relationships is what we measure on. Um, and then you have the, we call it Aura Professional. This is the self-service, swipe your credit card, you're a small startup, you started 50 bucks per month type of a thing, and then you scale as with, with increasing usage from there, all the way to the Aura DB Enterprise Edition, right? So Enterprise Tier, which is the fully managed enterprise mission critical workloads, it has all the bells and whistles, private link, VPC, SSO integration, SOC 2 type 2 compliance, you know, all that kind of stuff that if you're a big bank, you, you need that for, for your mission critical workloads, right? So the full spectrum is now available as a managed service and then the equivalent of that, um, you know, on the self-managed. And I think that's the blueprint you mentioned, Jay, from Confluent. If you look right. at yeah. Confluent, yeah, totally. Elastic, MongoDB. So this is kind of the blueprint that is that is emerging for 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 our type of company. Right. It ends up being that like way way you started and evolved the business has become this. It's it's right in the sweet spot of this go to market approach, right? Like as the world has realized that the classical way of doing enterprise marketing and sales is pretty expensive. Um, you know, this kind of product-led growth or organic community-oriented way of, of generating leads is is a super valuable asset, right? So who, for the, yeah, to have that at the core, it's incredible. Totally. It's generating leads, that's one part, but there's also the moat around the business. It's a right? huge if moat. Think about, yeah, yeah. yeah if, if you think about, th there's this big crossroads when you have infrastructure software companies, ISVs mm -hmm. like, like Neo4j or Among or Elastic or something like mm -hmm. that, right? There's a huge kind of fork, like in, in the road upstream, which is can one of the cloud platforms take your product and operate it as their own, right? Right. So when Amazon enters into your product category and 
what I usually say is that there's only two certainties in life, right? One is we're all going to die, right? And the second one is we're all going to compete with Jeff Bezos eventually. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even sure about the former, by yeah. the way. You yeah. know, um, they're working on but, that, but <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Right. But in fact, like, Jeff Bezos is probably working on that, right? <laughs> probably one of the things yeah. he's working on, right? Um, but like when Amazon does enter into your into your category, right? That can generally be good news versus bad news, right? Like um, for us, we've chosen a category creation go to market play, right? So. We yeah. coined the term graph database, as you as, as you probably know, right? And we popularized that term and evangelized it. And what success looks like is you get competition. That is what yeah. success looks like with that one, right? So when Amazon enters into your category, right? Yeah, every founder will say, oh, this validates our category. Great news, great news. And then privately, they're like, damn it, holy shit. What are, yeah. what are we going to do, right? Right. When you have category creation, that totally. genuinely is, is accurate. That is what you want with category creation, right? You want to get that validation. But if they enter into your category with your own product, which is a unique challenge for specifically open source companies, right? You're in for a world of pain. Ask those Hadoop vendors you talked, right. you mentioned right. before, or for that matter, you know, Elastic or, or, or someone like that. Totally, yeah. And so tell and me, so, sorry, finish your thought, finish your thought. No, and then so, so then just going full circle on kind of that developer and developer, the developer go to market, that community being a source of lead gen, that is completely accurate. But if yeah. you look at a company like like Neo4j or, or MongoDB, right? A huge part of the moat here is A, the fact that they can't enter into our category with our own product, and then B, the rich developer community around the company. Exactly. So I want to talk about just like fundamentally the the elevator pitch for for a graph database because I think as you mentioned in the beginning, um, a lot of people have sort of built little um, little API layers on top of a relational store or a key value store or whatever for doing this right, um, and I think a lot of people have not even used a graph database. I remember fiddling with Neo4j a bunch, like way back in the in the very early years with you guys. Um, but then I do, I, I think we actually tried to use it on Prismatic at one point. I think we ended up hand rolling some stuff on top of a, um, uh, we had, I think a couple of different ways of doing it, you know, on top of key value stuff and on top of relational stuff. And, um, I think it's it's a it's a real challenge. I'm sure that you guys have had right where a lot of people have hand rolled different things, and there's certain use cases where it's probably fine. It's probably fine to do that, and then there's other use cases where it's like, no, that actually really sucks. So I'm kind of curious to hear your elevator pitch for like why graph databases, why not roll something on top of relational or key value, and like. When is it when when is it really the sort of sweet spot where you really nail it and like doing something else is really is really shitty and this is just like a- absolutely way better no questions asked like clearly you should do it this way. Yeah. It's a it's a super interesting question, right? So I actually unpacking it, I think it's it's actually two parts to your question. One is what's the value of using graphs or let's talk about it as relationships in your data. For a specific use case, that's kind of one. 
And then the second part of your question is like, how do you best deliver on that capability? Is it a native graph database or is it a layer on top of an existing relational or key value stores or something like that, right? So I'm going to start with the, with, with the first part, right? So the fundamental value prop of a graph database is, you know what? It turns out that we're living in, live in, in an increasingly connected world, right? Every day, like here we sit, you're in the East Bay of San Francisco. I'm in Malmo, Sweden, right? We're on this multi-way call, right? I'm carrying multiple phones in my pockets. I have AirPods. Everything's just becoming more and more connected, right? We, that's hardly a controversial statement, right? But if you think about the consequences of data, right, for an increase in the connected world, what is data actually, right? You founded a VC from DCVC Data Collective, right? Like, what is data actually? Well, you know what? Data is a digital representation of the physical world. It's a way of describing the world, right, in digital form. And so as the world is becoming more connected, data is becoming more connected. And connections in data exert a huge amount of pressure on a relational database. If we just go back to the fundamental and talk about the relational database. This is how, when you, when you want to model how things fit together, right, the supply chain, for example, right, from point A to point B to point C, and then we deliver it to our stores, right? You want to model that connected data structure, you have to use joins. And joins are really powerful. Joins are not bad. They're amazing. It's arguably actually the most powerful fundamental operation in a relational database, but it's very expensive, computationally expensive, and it's exponentially expensive. So you do two, you do three, you do four, and all of a sudden you're talking with non-trivial data sets, seconds, pretty soon you're talking minutes and hours, right? And so then you start thinking about my supply chain example. 10, 15 years ago, if I went to any manufacturer, anyone who's producing physical goods, they might have a, have a supply chain that is two, three levels deep, right? Today, fast forward to 2022, right? 2023, I guess, when, when this is being released, right? Then any company that is producing stuff is tapping into this global fine-grained mesh spanning continent to continent. And all of a sudden, there's a drunken captain that blocks the Suez Canal for for a week, if you recall that. I think, was that oh, yeah. 2021 or 2020? Right. I don't even remember. Right, right. Like, I remember the memes. I remember the yeah, memes. Yeah, and it's like yeah. the entire global supply chain just got clogged up in that, right? Mm. And then in order to analyze and figure out, hey, hey, hey how is this going to impact my business, right? You have to digitalize your supply chain. And you're not talking two, three levels deep. Now you're talking 20, 30 levels deep. If you're not trying to make sense of that, you have to use a graph database. Your relational database, it's going to be just turning away for hours at end, right? And so when you have use cases, when how things fit together is really valuable, that's when a graph database shines. So this is real-time recommendations, right? You know, you and me, how are you and I connected through our common purchase patterns? You build up a digital twin of any kind of retail business or other type of business. Great use case for graph databases. Fraud detection, fantastic use case for us. Knowledge graphs, identity and access management, customer 360. You go down the list of the classic kind of graph database use cases, but the fundamental kind of data pattern to it is how things fit together multiple right. layers down, right? And do, so that's kind of the... 
do they have to do this? Is it, is it about the sort of real time or on demand nature that makes you want to use a graph database? Cause for example, I know, um, you know, in the social network world, which seems like, I mean, it, it all is, it is all this. I, I think they end up not using graph databases as much as you would think. And the reason why is that, uh, is, is actually just speed demand. So everything ends up with this super gnarly, like pre-computation paradigm, right? Everything gets pre-computed and duplicated, right? So there's massive, massive amount of data duplication and pre-computation in order to like serve up all these news feeds super fast, or like you click on, you know, you try to go through the graph of your social network and see who's following who and all this stuff. It's like, everything is like pre-computed and cached to the nides, right? Because that's the only way you're going to make this stuff fast enough. Um, so is is that, do you, would you agree with that? Is that the case that they end up doing that? Whereas like, if you need to do something on demand, that's where the graph database really, really shines. Yes, I would agree with that. Like the real time nature and the particular real, like a mixed read, write workload yeah. in real time, yeah, that is yeah. really kind of the sweet that makes spot, sense. like the, the yeah. must have kind of in the quadrant. Now, you can't you, weasel out of it by pre computing everything in that case. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, even in the stuff where, in your words, you can't weasel your way out of it with, with pre compute, um, that's usually a more awkward surface for the developer. Right. Yeah. Totally. So, if you can solve it with an existing graph database, that's just a lot more convenient. Right. Now, if your Facebook scale and you were started in 2005, you will have invented your own thing. They happen to call their own in-memory graph layer tau, right? Yeah. Which is petabytes and petabytes of RAM because yeah. it's meta wallets, <laughs> right? So they can afford, right. you know, that, that that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. But 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 generally, what 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 you said is is right. And getting then to the kind of the second part of your of your question, right? What ends up happening? We see exactly what you said, which is People do some of these point solutions where they they duplicate it in memory, they store it in some other database, and they try to build some kind of replicated in-memory version of the graph. Right. And sometimes they pre-compute it and duplicate it, which is another way of doing denormalization, mm -hmm. right? Basically, right? So we see that, right? And it's typically point solutions. Mm -hmm. What no one has been able to do at scale is take an existing database build a layer on top of that and offer that as a generic graph database product or service, right? Mm -hmm. Datastax, try that. This is the, the company behind Apache Cassandra. They try that with various versus DSC graph. It used to be called Titan and Janus graph, which was a layer on top of Cassandra or HBase, right? They try that. It could never scale beyond two, three hops because that was as, as much as they could pre-compute, right? Mm -hmm. So that never took off. Microsoft tried that with Cosmos DB, which used to be an amazingly strong, actually the best document database that I know of, including Mongo, right? Mm. Used to be this Azure, it was called Azure Document DB. Mm -hmm. They rebranded as Cosmos, added a layer of graph on top of it, right? Completely abysmal performance and scalability. No one, no one is using it yeah. for that. So every single company that has tried to layer, a, add a graph layer on top of their existing database, have ultimately failed, right? Yeah. And that's because makes sense. it's so much more powerful if you own the entire stack. Mm. You can optimize your storage engine, your transaction manager, your query planner, everything, mm. your entire stack for connected mm -hmm. data. 
which is right. ultimately where you get all the performance, the scalability, and really importantly, all the reliability and data durability benefits. Right. That makes sense because that piece of it's super gnarly with connected data compared to yeah. a lot of other types of data. So, so given you guys have been around so long, I'm guessing that maybe you hit some kind of inflection point or maybe it has been like slow, steady growth the entire time. I don't know. Like, did you see periods of change where you really saw like big acceleration and growth? And then like, how do you see this in the next five, 10 years? Like, what do you see the big future, like use cases and areas of growth? I want to hear about the sort of backward and forward looking growth yeah. story a little bit. Yeah. So, so a little bit of kind of inflection points in the, in, in the past, we've actually had a very similar story to MongoDB. Like if mm -hmm. you look at MongoDB, right, we're, we're a private company, right? So we're not talking about our numbers. We did announce that we crossed a hundred million ARR last year. So we've done kind of some of those kind of spot announcements. Congratulations. But, that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. So. Th thank you. Th thank you. It's kind of interesting actually, since we've talked a lot about that, the past before I get back to the Mongo analogy, um, there's like over uh, 350 databases tracked on DB engines that were born out of that Cambridge explosion in the late 2000s, right? Yeah. Over a hundred of them raised raised money. Over 50 institutional VC capital. Yeah. Five have crossed 100 million ARR. Wow. Right? Mongo, Couchbase, Data Stacks, Redis, yeah. and Neo4j. Right. Wow. That's it. Right, Redis. Yeah, so I haven't heard about Redis in years. I forgot about exactly, this. exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, but but coming back to kind of inflection points in the past, or kind of in our growth curve. So we've had that very same fifty plus percent steady growth that Mongo exhibited for years. Right, mm -hmm. you know, and when they went public in 20, 2017, right, with uh, you know about one hundred and fifty million ARR, right. And you could track back three years past, 50 plus percent growth very steadily, right? That is exactly our numbers. Mm -hmm. Like this very steady, mm -hmm. never the hyper growth that you see with the analytical databases, right? The mm -hmm. snowflakes and the databricks of the world. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that you don't see that on the OLTP databases, the operational data stores, for reasons of friction of adoption. It's like right. when you adopt an operational data stores, it's a capital B, capital D decision. Right, yeah. like that's the back end for your entire thing, right? The system of record for your application, right? right? That's a big decision, so much more friction. Yeah. On the analytical data store, it's much easier to spin that up. It's a low consideration decision. You spin it up, you put some data in there, you get some analytics back out from it. If it's valuable, you keep using it, right? And so you have more explosive growth. On the flip side, you have a higher churn, right? Yes. On the operational yeah. side, it's it's not growing as fast. It's still strong growth, but it's steady because it's yeah. executing it against the biggest market in all of enterprise software, which is the database market, right? right? And so when you have growth like that, it's never like the inflection point is much more, it's much more a perception on the outside. Yeah. Because you grow 50% at, I'm making numbers up, at 25 million. Yeah. It's kind of good, but not really great. You grow 50% mm -hmm. at 100 million. That's best in class. Yeah, all right. All of a sudden. Yeah, right. Totally. And then, and then you do that with the stickiness of a of a database category. Yeah. Right. That's all of a sudden very, very interesting. Right. Yeah. So it's one of those yes. things where kind of exponential growth looks linear in the beginning, yes. like from the outside. Right. Type of a thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a that's a big part of it. And you're just not hearing about it because you guys are down in the boiler room, like making exactly. sure the infrastructure. Yeah. Right Look, now. I bet every single person who's listening to this podcast have used Neo4j this week. Right. You go to any 
if, if you're using cash in the US, any ATM, 20, every single one of the 20 biggest banks in North America are using Neo4j today. 99% of all airfare calculations, how do I fly from SFO to Copenhagen? 99% of that is using Neo4j. Every single time you booked a room with any Marriott property, so Marriott, Starwood, Ritz-Carlton, you've used Neo4j, right? It's just that to your point, it's it's a back-end technology so, so no one knows about it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's buried in the infrastructure layer and we don't hear about it that much until all of a sudden people are like, whoa, that thing's huge. I actually didn't even notice, you know, when I was um, going through my friends to set up uh, the interviews for this pod, that was the first time I honestly noticed how big you guys had gotten, really. You know, because it's been very, like, stealthy in the sense that I don't see a lot of, like, pomp and circumstance and stuff. Frankly, that's probably good. I think a lot of people who put a lot of energy into that and attract too much attention to themselves when it's not really due, like, and end up doing themselves, like, a disservice, you know, because, you know, the, there's always a low that comes after every high, right? That's, like, the nature yeah, of the, of the sure. world. So it no, can be, yeah, be pretty I bad. I agree more. And we're very kind of engineering-y and very Swedish when it comes to stuff like that, right? Yeah. That we, 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 we lead with substance and we lead with, with, with product. Now, right. I said that, like the fact that we raised the largest round in database history right, right last year, yeah. right? That was meaningful. A lot of people kind of, that raised a lot of eyebrows. And then we announced the 100 million, crossing $100 million. That ended up being actually meaningful. So- we probably could do a little bit more of that, yeah. to be honest. But yeah. at our core DNA, we're still kind of just, hey, let's build great product that solves yeah. real customer problems. And yeah. and that's kind of what, what, what gives us energy. And I think, you know, honestly, though, man, you know, I'm a long-term business builder. And, you know, the when the cycles are down like they are now is when people start remembering and respecting like the difficulty of building a real business and not overhyping everything and doing a lot of this bullshit and so you know i think maybe a lot of things you know in hindsight seem wise that that maybe felt a little bit like man we could should be getting more attention or whatever but i think now it's you know it, it's better it's better to not try to shine the limelight on yourself like too much in particular, if you're not having challenges with customer acquisition or with recruiting or whatever, right? It's like, I always think of stuff that way as a CEO is like, do I, if I'm going to shine a spotlight on myself, I need to know why, right? Like if I'm, if I need to hire people or I need to like bring in customers or whatever, like whatever, I'll get up on stage, I'll do whatever I have to do, you know, but I'm not going up there just to make myself feel good about myself or like just be, for the vanity or, or be cool or whatever. Right. I really don't give a shit about any of that. I only care about the outcomes based stuff. And so it's like, I, I think you know, people are starting to respect that as we go into more real business building mode. Um, and so, you know, playing the long game like that, I think is smart. And then now you guys are in a p real position where doing more of that over time makes sense. And you're, you're shining a spotlight on something really beefy. So you have a lot to talk about, right? Like you're never going to be in a position where you kind of got out ahead of your skis, which I think is really respectable. Um, so like that said, you did raise a lot, you, you kind of, 
the growth has been slow and steady, but the the capital raising has been uh, sort of like backloaded in a way, right? Were, were you pretty lean for a long time? Like, did you run? Do you feel like you ran the company intentionally lean? And like, tell tell me about that journey because it wasn't until way later that you've raised a ton of capital, right? Yeah, and so so I, we've always had a very long term view on this. Like, I I have the best job in the world. Like, I love to do what I do. And, and I would love to be the CEO of this company 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I think we're doing something really, really meaningful. You know, there's now 20 independent projects that use Neo4j to find the cure for cancer, which is just like this amazingly humbling thing. We were the back end for the Panama Papers, which identified a bunch of offshore tax fraud and several prime ministers in the world had to resign because of the findings, you know, in, in, in that. NASA is publicly on the record saying that thanks to Neo4j, humanity is going to get to Mars two years earlier, right? Like that type of impact, it's just like, it's so humbling and so, so inspiring. So we're in it for the long and for the long run, for the long term, right? And, and it's a category creation play. And it took a while for the world to catch up. And then I mentioned before I was kind of patting myself on the on the back about all the thoughtful, super strategic, like licensing decisions that we made, made made before, right? And and I I am proud of some of those decisions, but everything is a trade-off. And one of the trade-offs that we made was, you know what? By virtue of having a very powerful enterprise edition, yes, that means that the cloud platforms can take it. And compete against us. Yes, that means we're going to convert more customers. So that's great for building a long-term company. But if we poured all those features into our community edition, we would have got a much bigger developer adoption, right? And this is what someone like Mongo did, or a generation before us, um, MySQL did, right? And then all of a sudden, you get a much higher degree of popularity and awareness and buzz, and all of a sudden, people start adopting your software for all kinds of new use cases, right? And so that creates the market faster in kind of in terms of mindshare, arguably not in terms of dollars, right? Which is what will matter to you as a public company in the, in, in the end, right? Um, but but so that was a drawback of, of some of those supposedly wise decisions that I talked about before, right? That you know, the, the way we structured, we got low, like less developer adoption, right? Now, so what that meant was that it took a while for the world to start realizing just how broadly applicable graph databases are, right? And so once the world started catching up to that, and now we have Gartner saying things like, in 2021, 10% of data and analytics innovation was backed by graph technology. And they're projecting by 2025, that's going to be 80%. Wow. 80% of all innovation that's in data analytics will be backed by graph technology, right? Yeah. This is Gartner saying that, the the yeah. masters at predicting the present, right? Right. You know, yeah. so like when they say that, you know, like, it's, oh, wow, it's really it's, a bad, right? It's already um, happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? Yeah. And, and, and so then, so that was this big leading indicator or enabler for us to say, you know what? Now it's time to start accelerating. We raised the big capital so that we can really start investing uh to 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 win the market yeah 
So one uh, before I forget, I I wanted to ask this a little earlier, but whatever. It's a it's a fun conversation. The you guys have been around so long on the JVM. I'm assuming you might have had to do some like big gnarly rewrites or something like that along the way, right? Because Java's uh, the Java and the whole JVM ecosystem is like radically more advanced and than it was back in the day. So. Um, have there been a few of these or whatever? Is there any, any just little, little bit you can give us about how you've had to change and evolve over time? And is it even still all written in Java? Is there, have you, have you played around with some of the other languages maybe on the JVM or something over time? It, so, yeah, so it's all of the JVM. It's all of the JVM with an asterisk that I'll get, get back to. It's, okay. it's all of the JVM. It's a multitude of, of, of languages between Java, the programming language, and, and Scala, and, and, and others as, mm-hmm. as, as, as well. I knew right? there was going to be some Scala in there because you got a, got a hat tip to the Swedes. Of course. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, but yeah, there's been a constant investment in various various ways of exploring the low-level functionality of the of the JVM. In fact, just outside this wall right here is the, is the kernel team here in, in, in Malmö, Sweden. So it's like a about a dozen people who is like obsessing over low-level JVM internals, you know, type type stuff. So like, so for example, we use all kind of off-heap storage, right? That we that we manage ourselves, and you know, and this depends on how technical your your audience is. But like, part of the promise of of Java and running on a on a runtime, running on a virtual machine, was you don't have to do manual memory management and. I know you spent a lot of time in in C plus plus back oh, yeah. in the days, right? Where or, or or C for that matter, like where it's like yeah. malloc. It's like all these manual ways. I'm gonna grab this memory now manually, yeah. and then I, as the developer, I have to keep track of that memory and then free it back out, right? Release mm-hmm. it back out. And Java took that all off the table, which is great mm-hmm. if you're building an application. Fantastic developer productivity benefit for us down in the engine room. That's not great, right? As a database, we want to own all that, right? And so, so you could argue that, like, we reinvented kind of all those C primitives, right, on top of of the JVM, right? But so, so, so the short summary of, of what you're saying is that we've done a ton of investment here, re-implemented it several times over and over again, and ultimately, I think it's it, we're very happy with our choice to be on the on the JVM. You can never fully A/B test something like this. But I don't think it's been a key thing holding holding us back. Uh, you know, for a while it looked kind of a little bit dicey, right? Because memory management was so gnarly on the JVM. Uh, but then collectively, I think as an industry, we figured out how to do that in a more in a more manual and, and scalable way, which takes takes more developer overhead, but ultimately works at at massive scale for these these big systems. So, so you have also use some other JVM languages for some parts of it too, it sounds like, yes. which is cool. Yes. Nice. Yeah. And so you've separated, I'm assuming, sort of different teams. So you have some people working down in like deep kernel level, like manual memory management stuff on your own set of like primitives and Java and so on that you guys have developed. That's, and then Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, cool, cool. And then, I, and then we try to have autonomous teams, right, where they can choose their programming language, like within ReadSense. Right and you know that, that that kind of stuff. So that's exactly. And have you? So is your so the go to look, go to market um, is is just all community oriented? Have you at some point started doing you know having like an enterprise sales team and enterprise marketing and stuff like that? 
Um, I'm sure you, you're doing stuff like this at this point. Like, yeah, how's this? This is, this is like, yeah, this is a very important and exciting part. It's easy to get kind of down in the weeds of the JVM primitives <laughs> and malloc and, and, and stuff like that. But, but man, in terms of controlling the, the long-term arc of the company, this is really important, right? So we're a developer first, you know, startup, right? In our go-to-market. And when I say developer first, it's actually practitioner first because there's an entire new leg emerging with, with Neo4j that is targeting data scientists, which is like super exciting. And you asked before about kind of future growth. And I didn't, I only talked about the historical stuff, but that's a big part of that. But let's put a pin in that for, for, for a moment. So developer first, which really is, is practitioner first, right? When you think about kind of classically how we've gone to market, it's been win the hearts and minds of developers everywhere, right? And this is community edition, download for free, our Aura free tier, sign up, use that, don't charge a dime. You know, they, we, we're not making any money out of it. Meetups, pizza and beer, all of that kind of stuff, right? And it becomes a little bit weird in terms of pandemic times, but the last full pre-pandemic year, 2019, we had over 500 events about Neo4j. 500 events. Do you think about that, right? That's that's twice, almost two events per working day, right? And and that's not because we had a 100-person event team, right? Like we organized, I have no idea, maybe 50 of them or 100 of them or something like that, right? The rest is just community. It's, uh, you know, some person in Jakarta who throws a meetup where, wherever we you have a new release of our product, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so that's kind of the, the core of it, right? And then, however, what do we monetize? We have a classic enterprise sales monetization strategy. So what this means is, you know, big, seasoned, experienced enterprise sales reps paired up with a dedicated sales engineer because it's a highly complex sale, selling into the global 2000, landing deal size of hundreds of thousands of dollars of ACV, annual contract value, recurring revenue, right? And so just think about what that means. That is, if they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the database, that means the project in and of itself is probably millions of dollars, which means the ROI has to be tens of millions of dollars, right? So that type of a thing, right? So in other words, we win the hearts and minds of developers, right? They learn in their free time, their spare time, e evenings and weekends to use Neo4j, play around with it, knows what kind of problems it solves. And then the next day they wake up and they work at Bank of America or British Telecom or AbbVie or like some big company, right? And they're tasked on a project where they realize that, you know what? We have graph-shaped data here. Why are we trying to squeeze that into a relational database? You know, I played around with Neo4j yesterday, last week, last month, last year, right? Whatever it might be. And I love that experience. It was so much fun, so productive. Let's see if that can, might be a good fit. They pick up the phone, they call us, and from then on, it's classic enterprise sales, right? But the really important thing here, and this is this is a huge part of, I think, building ultimately a sustainable and successful go-to-market for, for infrastructure startup is 85%, in our case, 85% of all big enterprise deals start with an individual technical channel, start with a developer. And what and why that is important is that it aligns the company, the long term and the short term of the company. Those incentives are aligned. So, in other words, we never have to do an argument of 
hey, we invest in our community, we invest in developer relations, instead of short-term ARR, instead of short-term revenue. No, no, no. The smartest way for us to get that is by loving developers, loving practitioners, growing that community, right? And every single situation I've seen with companies where it's two different things, they build a community and then they monetize separately, has ultimately fallen apart, where the community becomes the stepchild, the secondary thing or something like that. Under the, with Even with all the best intents, even with founder-led businesses whose heart is all in that, it's just the, the everyday pressure of quarter to quarter, which ultimately is where you end up as a even private, but for sure public company, right? People have to optimize for that short term. So aligning the short term and the long term has been like a core part, I think, of our of our success to date in our go to market. Yeah, I think you know, just digging into this a little bit, it's so important when we talk about enterprise go to market and and sort of the, this idea that the community is just um, generating leads. It's it's much 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 more than that, right? Because let's say you want to crack the top twenty banks, you know who the top twenty banks are. It's not difficult yeah. to find them out. Yeah. You can stick an enterprise sales team on those accounts and they're going to have to map out all the key stakeholders, all the different groups, like all the places, you know, oh, we know we do stuff in fraud. Like, let's go find who wants fraud. There's a lot of fucking work to map all that out. A lot of fucking work. And then the stakeholders are changing all the time. There's reorgs all the time. This guy who we just spent six months ago, now he works over at Citibank now. That fucks everything up. It's a huge, huge cluster, right? When you do that top-down enterprise approach, mapping all this shit out. So when you have a situation where the community is just generating buzz around a new piece of technology or something, um, that's cool, and, and it'll help you. It'll reduce sales friction. But that's not the same as when some uh, like your case when you have a developer who's really getting it they understand where it should be used and they've brought it in as an idea for a particular project and now you're bottom up having that person telling their manager and initiating effectively this enterprise sales machinery that didn't have to do all this shit because the developer is the one who did it so it's not just that they've thrown a lead over the wall to you They've brought you in to a very particular use case project, a team, everything, right? So you're skipping all this, like, map the org, go, you know, this sort of, like, uh, breadth-first approach where you have to layer by layer map everything out, right? And it's sort of this bottom-up, uh, depth-first approach where, like, you're going way down to a particular use case and then all the way back up. Now you're building out the sales process around that, you execute, build a case study around it within the organization. Now everybody else can look and see, oh, look what these guys did over here with this near for j thing. That's pretty sweet. Like, we should be doing that over here too. So when you understand how organizational dynamics work in these big companies and how complicated real enterprise sales is for these larger deals, then and you've watched many of these companies be built the way that I have, you come to appreciate there's an enormous, enormous economic and speed advantage that accrues to a player that has something like you guys have where that technical champion is bringing in new, to a real project 
Um, and they've already done all this pre-work, right? Because this is, I mean, people come up with whole, we, uh, in companies I've done in the past, we've had come up with crazy special workshops where you like get together, you know, certain stakeholders and do this accelerated like POC as a workshop type thing for one day and then to show the value and then come back and do like a readout of the results to management and all this shit. You skip all this, all of it. You don't have to do any of that because you've you've cultivated the community the community has has gotten a person to get it and then to see the use case inside their own company and then they're the ones who bring you it and that's just awesome like it's just saves so much bullshit like yeah. it, it, it's it's really powerful now what what if you take that go to market motion and you combine it with an ability in the organization to address different altitudes in the enterprise um, uh, inside of the customer base, that's when it become it can become magical, right? And so, if you think about kind of enter, like an enterprise as a pyramid with three layers into it, what we've talked about now is the practitioner level. This is the individual technical champion, data scientist, or or developer. Then the the mid part of of the pyramid that would be the person sitting inside of the IT org who is like a development manager or director of IT, owns a class of business problems from an IT and a technical delivery perspective, right? And those you want to address with a use case message, right? The for the base of the pyramid, that's when you talk about what I said in the beginning, which is you don't have you don't want to do joints and this is the value of the intuitiveness, agility, and the flexibility of the graph data model, like that kind of stuff, right? That speaks to the practitioner. But then the mid-level, you hit them with a use case and you say, you know what? Other companies that look like you, they've used Neo4j to capture fraud rings, right? Dear director of risk at like this global bank, can you capture fraud rings with your existing fraud uh, software? It's like, no, we actually can't. Well, with a graph database, you can, and you should see 3 to 5% um, more fraud captured. If you can capture this fraud rings. Oh, that's amazing. So you can hit them with that, that value message, right? And then the last altitude, that's kind of the C-suite where you say, hey, you know what? Dear big CIO level type at this, this brick and mortar enterprise, you really have to become a software company or a data driven company. And you know what? The technology that underpins Google is graph based. We can give you that, right? In a little box. And then all of a sudden, you can implement this product and that product and that product and become a more data-driven enterprise, right? Yeah. If you can all articulate that at these different three levels of altitude, that's really magical. That's yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome because you can sort of expand bottom-up really, really efficiently by not just relying on another developer to pull you into another use case like you. You're in there and you, want you both. pitch the higher-ups, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you, you want to work your budget. Yeah. by doing that, right? Because you don't want to be stuck in, in negotiating a, like a, a the price with a developer because they don't have any budget authority. Right, you yeah, totally. At least one level up for that, right? Totally. Um, so tell me, with COVID and all the tech downturn and everything in the past couple of years, um, has it affected you a lot? Have you guys had to do layoffs or anything? Have you had to do some, maybe some belt tightening or re replanning, you know, just kind of completely replan the next year or two or tell me how it's affected you? Yeah. And we look here like like a lot of tech companies, I, I think, which is, you know, COVID hit and 
and we all panicked or at least became very cautious, right? Um, we we never did any layoffs or, or anything like that, but we certainly pulled the brakes on everything, hiring freeze and all that kind of stuff, you know, in, in Q2 of, of 20, 2020. And then lo and behold, wait, what do you mean the metrics are better? Like, wait, why does everything look faster? Like, why is the pipeline so rich? And like, well, okay, man, we better start hiring, right? And and so, so like, like all of that stuff, right? And some version of the pandemic accelerated not all trends, as it turned out, but 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 many trends. And we certainly were the were the beneficiaries um, of of that, right? And like like many technology companies, obviously now we're recording this in November of 2022, and I think by the time this goes live in early 2023, we're probably going to know more about kind of the impending re- recession. Things certainly are looking a lot. Um, a lot more dire from a macroeconomic perspective between, you know, whatever Fed raising rates on one hand and inflation on the other hand and geopolitics and like war in Europe and supply chain disruption. And you add this all up together and certainly looks like a, like a worrying cocktail as I'm sitting here in November of, 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 of 2022. And like everyone else, we're, we're taking a cautious stance, feeling very, very, very lucky that we raised money in September. Sorry, in 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 summer of 2021, which was kind of the peak of the peak of the peak. So we have a really strong balance sheet. We have years and years of runway. We don't have to raise money probably ever again, right? Until we go public, right? But certainly not in in the next couple of years with. Mm-hmm. This probably impending impending re- recession, but mm-hmm. I'm certainly taking a much more cautious and conservative stance today than you know if we had spoken six months ago. Yeah, but you've already you feel like everything has kind of been incrementally baked into all of your planning and stuff. You haven't now. Now it has not yeah. like if you look back twelve months ago, it certainly looked a lot. You know, like yeah. we're going to move m- much. Much, much faster. So, right? Sounds but, like just in general. It sounds like just in general, you have taken a bit more of a steady and level-headed approach because I do know a number of my um, friends that are CEOs that got really swept up at the end of the cycle. And I, I think a lot of people don't understand the pressure that gets put onto CEOs by their boards if they don't have in my opinion, good boards. I think a lot of uh, VCs will are just, they just don't think from first principles at all. It's all pattern matching and what's happening and social proof and so on around them. And so I have many friends that uh, they hired a shitload more people than they should have and they didn't even know why and they couldn't tell me why at the time. I remember talking to a few friends and and they're, you know, hey, we're higher. Yeah, we're we're increasing the the sales staff by fifty percent in the next two quarters. And I'm just sitting there saying, "Fuck, dude, are you are you sure you want to do that?" Like, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm not even sure that we're really nailing the motion yet." And so, on. and I'm like, "Yeah, but then why the fuck are you doing this, right?" And and just like all the other all the other people in the peer group are doing it, and like I just can't get the board off my back. Like we just have to do it. So we raised all this money, and we're hiring all these people. And I'm like, dude, that's not how you fucking make good business decisions. What are you doing? Like, you know, you and and these are people who 
that's out of character for them, right? And so I think like at the end of the cycle, a lot of people lost the their their grounding and like even strayed you know strayed from their roots of rationality. And these are these are former technical, you know, pretty principled like rigorous thinking folks that really like lost their marbles at the end of the cycle and really like allowed people to pressure them into shit that they didn't even think was a good idea or or even really paused to question whether they should think it's a good idea. They just kind of went with it. And of course, all those companies end up needing to do a bunch of layoffs, you know, 30, 30% plus staff reductions, either in one or two waves. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, I, I think being a little bit more principled and having their courage to not do that was very smart and probably part of why you're not needing to do layoffs and everything now you can sort of incrementally respond to stuff more reasonably because you didn't you didn't uh, you know bow to any pressure to increase headcount way faster than you should have you know if you look at the numbers from the crazy fang phase at the end of this thing it was bananas like the way that facebook and some of these others just mushroomed their teams like, you know, 2019 to 22 or whatever was just totally bonkers. It just, you look at this stuff and you're like, what the fuck? Like, who, why did this, you know, what are you thinking? And it's just like people go into these frenzies and they're not thinking. That's the answer. The answer to what are you thinking is fucking nothing, right? Because you're just reacting. You're just reacting out of emotion and FOMO and stuff and not, you're not reasoning from first principles about why you're doing this and why are these people really needed and what economics support this? Like what would, what would need to happen for this to, you know, make sense. And for us to double down on this, what would need to happen for us to need to roll this back? Like none of that was being asked. And so sure enough, it all had to be rolled back like this. And I think we're not even, and now we're not even at the end of it. We're not even at the end of it. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 so I agree with that. I, I do think, I, I guess my, my, my steel man or my, my argument in favor of your, your friends would be some version of exactly what you said, the pressures from the board, like when all the incentives in your ecosystem are on top line growth and nothing else. Yeah, right. Exactly. On one yeah. hand, there's an excessive amount of capital, right? And then in certain industries, there's at least a perception of a window. Like there's a window of opportunity. Like if we don't take the market in the next yeah, three months. That was always the years, argument. Three yeah. years, right? We're gone. We're gone. So that was always was, the argument. Go big or go home. It's it's kind mm -hmm. of the perception of whether that's true or not, but the perception mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And then competitive dynamics where your competitors might be using kind of it, yeah. capital as a weapon, yep. right? Which maybe we saw like in some Ubers and whatever stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. And you add those four factors together. Yep. That's a really strong maelstrom that it's hard for, I think, especially first-time founders uh, to to resist. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that argument of the speed and there's this like narrow window we have to fly through, and these other guys are trying to fly through too, and like we just need to you know, put on the afterburners as hard as possible to see if we can get through there before them is sort of the, the argument. It's sort of like the, it's like FOMO on steroids, right? They just ramped it, ramped it to like the max possible FOMO. <laughs> um, it's like peak, peak emotion FOMO that, that is like, I think sort of fairly heavily VC driven. Um, 
but you know it resulted in the, like i mean you remember like stuff like the scooter category which isn't even a thing that was like right that was one of these like we gotta all race to capture this market that doesn't actually fucking exist <laughs> it just like manifested this temporary like strange market for it it was just like that was just super bizarre right like books there probably is already a book about the scooter thing if not there should be but that's a that's a fascinating one where it's just like the economics and were just never really validated you know at all and it just became the super bizarre like ephemeral category um, purely based on exactly what we're talking about, this maelstrom. Just so, so tell me about um, as a first-time founder, first-time CEO. Um, it's hard, right? Uh, and coming from a technical background, there's a bunch of stuff that in the beginning you kind of stink at. All of us. Um, what have been some of your biggest challenges as a as a first-time CEO? And I mean, it's been good that you had, I think, some time to kind of grow into it at the beginning. But you seem you seem quite business savvy now. Like, what did you feel that way in the beginning, or is that something that came in time? Like, I'd love to hear some of the biggest challenges in your your growth yeah, as a CEO. I've always found it easy to absorb kind of the theory of business. That you know, probably like yourself, someone who is kind of steeped in maths and engineering and computer sciencey stuff. It's like the the theoretical aspects of it aren't that hard if you're no. interested in it. And I was always interested in it. The challenges are always people, of course, like how do you deal, how do you deal with the various people, people issues. Um, but even maybe more broadly, it's like, I tend to get caught up in strategy. I love kind of formulating my two by two matrices and charting out, you know, and I love kind of analyzing our market and trends in it and can talk forever about stuff like that. But that's not the real game. Like strategy is whatever some very low single digit percent of, of success execution is the real game that is that is what it's about right and and that's probably where i've i've had to kind of work the hardest on my on myself right and grow grow the most right and and i couldn't really translate like execution in my old profession as a, as a hacker was like crisp thinking being able to bang out code really fast that was maintainable and did the job and you know it is that whereas execution for a company it's much more about processes discipline like a culture of accountability it's just like it's a very different game from being good at execution as a coder right if you know what i mean and so so that's probably the the biggest one and, and and one that I'm constantly struggling with, challenging myself on because the game is different, right? Like when you're 20 people versus 200 people, we're 700 people now, right? It's in a different game, kind of the layers and and just how you shape and affect the culture. Like it's it's a very different game, right? So I'm kind of constantly thinking about about that one, but that probably would be the the biggest biggest challenge uh yeah i don't think challenge i think and i think with uh with execution as a ceo you know you're really you're really driving execution you're not executing anything you're driving execution in the organization and that's you're ensuring that execution happens yeah yeah and that's very very hard and especially like i think driving accountability and having the feedback loop that sort of 
puts accountability in place always is hard because that's where you hit the the rubber meets the road right and you need to fire people or switch them out of their roles or you know you it's when shit's working it's working there's like not a lot to do right that's awesome when it happens but a lot of the times like shit isn't working right and you've got to do something about it well um, and and the stuff that was working in a previous stage or in fact that was the reason you got to the previous stage yeah might be the completely wrong thing to do in your new stage right yeah totally. right yeah. And, and and so there's a ton of that's like wait 180 degree and it kind of your head spins for a while and your entire muscle memory is is wrong because you've actually step function changed into a new dimension and yeah. gravity so shit doesn't drop now shit falls sideways here it's like oh, okay yeah. well, you have to <laughs> right. figure that out and it's kind of totally, like with totally. kids the moment you figure out a new face they evolve into a new to a different one right and yeah it's exactly that type type of a thing but that's why the like the the learning curve for a like a founder CEO at a high growth startup it's like it's a vertical learning curve that's yeah. part of why what makes the job so so fascinating too yeah it's fun and interesting and very challenging right like what so people you mentioned people issues what have been you know some of the top couple people challenges so far has it been growing organizations that you didn't know anything about initially like sales or whatever or has it been hard organizational changes where you have to get rid of people or groups that aren't functioning like what have, what's been most challenging yeah it's probably been more the latter right mm. i felt like org design comes recently natural to me like how, how should i structure the, yeah. the company but yeah. like processes i'm not really a process guy and yeah. in particular not with i mean i i was probably that on the engineering side back in the day so I, I kind of i like that i was never like amazingly good at it but you know but then for all these different disciplines that i've just never done right like that's it so okay so then how do we institute like a regular cadence of operating reviews and like who should own that right and and like and, and just like individual things too like i'm um, i'm good in like an individual meeting to drive to kind of clarity on all right so what are we saying here like we want to do xyz and who owns x and y and z is that is that you joe and you jane are you the owners of that is that is that what i'm hearing i'm good at that kind of stuff and then i'm terrible at remembering it then i move on to the next conversation and in the best of worlds joe and jane would remember that have the same view as i do and then we have another meeting three weeks later they've delivered on that but that's not how things work at scale. Like when you're 10 people, that's how things work, right? Otherwise you go out of business, right? But at scale, that's not how things work because there's so many competing priorities and misunderstandings and stuff like that. So then you have to have a system for recording stuff like that and remembering that until that follow-up meeting three weeks from now, right? And so instituting stuff like that, that has been kind of some of the some of the hardest stuff. But then also like to your to your question, just some of those people decisions where you have people who have been fantastic in the past, right? To great, accomplished, amazing people, highly talented, who kind of Steve Jobs bleed in five collars type of a thing. They're so passionate about New York Day and what, what we do, right? But they're not the right fit right now for the next stage for the company, right? And you know it, right? They might not, and they might disagree with even that. Right. And then making those decisions, having those conversations, 
man, that's um, that's not fun. But ultimately, that's that's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're mistreating the people who are the right fit, right? Because ultimately, your obligation is to the company and to all the stakeholders of that of that company: shareholders, customers, partners, employees, right? That's that is what who what what your where your loyalty has has to lie as a, as a CEO. So you have to yeah. have those conversations, but, but that those have been some of the challenge, most challenging parts. And I think what I've learned over the years too, is like, ultimately that, that person isn't served by, you know, fighting to the death either. Right. Like you, you, you know, that you don't leaving them there failing or, or no, you know, already and knowing that it's just going to keep getting worse. Um, just because you're afraid of conflict um, is kind of a, a weak ass move, right? From a leader, if you think about it, it took me a while to see it that way because, you know, you just it, you, but you have to empathize with their position too and realize, like, yeah, if they are failing, and it's going to get worse, and they're not necessarily seeing it, um, it's wor- way worse for them to ca- let them continue in that situation, right? It's like. There, you have to at some point. It's almost like coming into more of like a fatherly kind of view on stuff. It's like I'm not going to let one of my kiddos actually hurt themselves. Right? They could play around with this toy and be silly and it's funny and stuff, but not not if it comes to the point where they're actually going to cut their hand off. Then it's like, no, 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 daddy's going to take that away. I'm not going to let you cut off your hand. You know, there has to come a point where you need to be able to see stuff at a higher level like that and stop people from cutting off their own hand. And usually it's better and they'll find themselves way happier in a different role later on, whether it's at your company or someplace else, you know, and they'll realize, okay, like I'm glad I'm not in that situation where I was failing, you know, even if they don't see it in the moment. I've had multiple people, you know, I've had multiple people that I circle back with you know, one, two years on that kind of see it the same, like in hindsight. Um, and anytime I've allowed it to drag on too long, you always regret it. They always regret it. It destroys relationships entirely. So that's kind of a funny thing is that like, you can, you can fire someone in a humane way that's stopping them from hurting themselves and the company and do it amicably, even if they're grumpy about it, and have a very positive relationship one year, two years down the line, you could let that same person fight themselves to the death until they see it's failing and then never speak to them again (laughs) forever because like you just allowed too much damage to be done, right? It's like a relationship that got too far out of hand and you can't even be friends anymore because there was just too much fighting or whatever, right? It gets and I think that's right. And kind of the, the... The model that has worked really well for me is kind of the Kim Scott radical candor type yeah. thing, right? Where it's yeah. like you have to, because I'm an empath, right? And and I just need to remind myself that my job is to be long-term kind to this person who I genuinely care about, right? And so that long-term kindness means sometimes short-term doing things that is going to be painful yes. and awkward and feel really, really terrible for that individual and, and for me too, right? But it's the right thing to do for the for the long term. And that goes for giving feedback, right? Mm-hmm. To also saying, hey, you know what? Like it's not working out. Let's find a great job for you elsewhere. You know, that that type yeah. of thing. 
So what, give me your top like one or two, um, and this is my last question. So I always like to, to talk about failing and what we learn from failure, because I think as CEOs, there's no, you know, there's no, um, precursor to what we do. You learn a lot of it on the job. And so by definition, we kind of have to fail a lot. Um, and we all usually have funny stories about things that we failed at that, that we've learned from. So, um, can you give me a top one or two fails that you've had over the years and what you've learned from them? Yeah, there's plenty to choose from, right? <laughs> you know, I'll have them. But, we all have them. Yeah, but but maybe I'll I can circle back with some of the things that we've talked about. We've talked about structuring the go-to-market and open source and like a community edition and open core and SaaS service and you know that kind of a stuff, right? And so I'll circle back to kind of early era, like our, my my biggest failure back in the day, which was um, when we started out, we had this, this I think, some amount of clarity around how we wanted to go to market, which is what I talked about before, we're in the hearts and minds of developers, right? And then through that, get like infiltrate the enterprise, right? And then sell into it with, with stand, you know, normal enterprise sales motion, right? That's kind of how we thought about it, right? Um, when we raised our Series A, we were 14 people, myself. I just hired a sales-oriented COO, right? Maybe an admin or two, and the rest are engineers, right? So 10, 11 engineers, right? A year later, we were 50 people in the company, still 10 to 11 engineers. And this is not... Because we had a product that the narrative that we told ourselves internally was, hey, we can hit our numbers for the next year or two, right? Without, with exactly this product. Yes, of course, we always have to invest in the product, but we don't need to balloon the engineering team right now because this product is good enough to sell for now, right? That type of a thing, right? Well, that's, that was accurate in the small, but in the big though, the real game with a B2D, with a developer first, hearts and minds of developers go to market strategy is it's a UX game. It's a yeah. DX specifically game, a developer right. experience. Yeah. Exactly. Right? And so back in the days when you played around with us, we were probably like an embedded Java library. I don't remember exactly what mm -hmm. what, what year, but like mm -hmm. we were, and we had like this, maybe like this HTTP REST API type of a thing. We just like, Man, it worked, but it's very awkward, right? And and so like, there's a lot of work we could have done in making like polishing the developer experience totally, of our product. Yeah, totally. Which we've mentioned Mongo several times on this podcast. That was their big brilliant. Right? Yes, yes. Look, I'm not going to sit there. I'm a big fan of Mongo. I'm not going to sit there and argue how their storage engine is amazing, or their internals, mm -hmm. or their whatever their single right lock it like there's a right. ton of like of internals that yeah you totally. know, we, we can we can debate yeah but their developer experience freaking amazing was awesome it was always yeah. very good right it was awesome you know and and so so what happened there was coming back to the biggest failure like in the early days was we had a strategy which was win the hearts and minds of developer that was the strategy but we resourced the company like a classic enterprise sales go to market machinery uh, yeah 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 and so there was an orthogonal thing going there's a strategy resourcing mismatch yeah right? totally it, it's not that one is better than the other 
Like right. I could have said, hey, let's let's not go to market. Let's go to market classic top-down sales enterprise. That's valid, right? But what isn't valid is have a strategy pointing in one direction and resource the company in the other. Right, yeah. Right? That probably set us back two to three years easily. I see. That makes sense. Did you have to... Um, get rid of people and do any layoffs at that point, or did or you you basically had to catch up the other piece that you had? You had to catch up. Yeah, had under and never had to catch up. Yeah, and I it see. took and it took a long time. Yeah, before, before we did that to rebalance. You you basically yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting one. Yeah, that's uh, I think so important to really like understand in a deeper way. Like, how am I going to market and like make sure that you don't scale the company up in the wrong way as you start scaling that up, which I think is very normal actually to kind of screw up. And there's many uh, different like vectors along which you can screw that up. It's not only like this developer oriented versus enterprise, there's many other ways, like in terms of thinking about marketing versus selling and all kinds of different things. So it's different geographies. I mean, there's all kinds of enterprise, mid market, self serve, yeah. like, yeah. yeah, there's what so kind of product am I, what kind of product am I trying to sell really? You know, that's another one that I've had a, a, horizontal versus vertical solutions versus yeah. platform. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And you get, you get some, like, if you view your business in a certain way, then you'll see another business as being analogous to it and think that you're going to get a person as a key leader from that business and they're going to be exactly the right fit. And then it turns out, no, they're not a fit at all. And it turns out that was just kind of a shitty analogy. It's like sort of true, but not really, you know, and then down in the rubber meets the road where you actually are are running out a sales process and stuff. You're realizing, oh, wow, yeah, this is like really different. You know, I had a, I had a company once that I, thought looked like a lot like another company that we hired several key executives from and it turned out that that was a much more of like a consultative type of a cell where there was a piece of underlying tech but ultimately there was quite a bit of like consulting and and also internal work where they were building something on top of the tech internally in the customer um whereas this was much more like straight up just like use the software right like not do any of that and it just created like so much weird friction and like the whole way of customer success and so on was way different you know i had a guy trying to build an army of forward deployed engineer type people going in there into the customer and running these giant gigs and i'm like fuck what is that what's happening this is a massive amount of friction like this isn't supposed to be what we're doing and you just realize oh shit like i completely you know some of the components of the technology were the same some of the customer segments and so on were the same, but ultimately, like in reality, it was a very different product, very different sell, very different like rollout, and ends up being like a really bad match. And there's just so many different ways you can kind of screw that up. And uh, I just, I guess, as long as you catch it before it gets too far away from you, because you can't. That's the key. You know, nail you it, yeah. then you scale it. Yeah. First, nail it. Yeah. And scale it. Exactly. That's, that's the model. You got to get yourself, you have to give yourself space to hit the reset button if it's not working, because if it isn't working and you've gone too far with it, you know, and you need to do these big layoffs and reorgs and stuff, and you're a small startup, like 20 to 75 people or whatever, you can't hit reset like that, you know, four or five times. You kind of get like one of those, maybe two, 
Um, and so you can't, you can't be wrong like multiple times, really. Like, you know, you get wrong like that and it's like, it's like, that's a, that's a do or die moment right there for the company. Like if you, if you don't sort of correct it, like I don't, I've, I'm not even sure if I've seen somebody get a, um, third chance. I think you kind of only get a second chance at that one. Like if you have to try to pivot it twice, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm racking my brain. I'm not thinking of, of one where I've seen that work. Um, I've seen it happen once and most of the time, even once, like it doesn't work. <laughs> so I think yours, yours was not that bad because you were just like off, but not like deeply wrong so it's not like you needed to nuke all that whole other no we were able to grow right? into it yeah exactly so i think i think that's really nice that's better like if it's if it was if those were like also the totally wrong kinds of people on the commercial side then that have been like potentially a company killer because it could have been too much for you to shift right but um anyways it's always fun to talk through these things and think about what we've learned from all the stuff we've screwed up along the way. <laughs> and the good news is, you know, when you do it at smaller scale, hopefully now you're not doing it at current scale as as much, right? So that's Don't make good. Make mistakes now. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully, you know, and hopefully ones that are uh, like incrementally a little bit smaller, you know. Right. So so you're not really necessarily do, taking this like company level risk, you know, at the large scale, um, you know, you can kind of get those kind of more egregious errors out of your system. <laughs> it's like smaller. <laughs> when you're tiny. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, cool, man. This was really a lot of fun. Thank awesome. you so much for taking the time. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Okay. See you later. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye.